Think of protecting your private keys like protecting your nude photos or the nude photos of your significant other or whatever scenario makes you feel most defensive. Because just like nudes, once private keys are exposed, you can never know how many copies were made or who has access to them. Hi, and welcome back to What Kind of Internet Do You Want? I'm Amy James, and today we're getting into cryptography. It's an essential component of the internet as well as blockchain technology, but it can feel really difficult to understand because it uses such complex math. So today we're breaking down the basics, talking about what it is, how it's used, the regulatory issues, and why it's absolutely crucial to protect your private keys. But before we do, please hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and hit the bell so that you'll get notified when new episodes come out. And let's get into it. Here are the five basic things you need to know about cryptography. So first, let's start by defining it. What is cryptography? Cryptography is the science of encrypting and decrypting data. And encryption is the process of encoding a message with an algorithm. But to uncover what it really means, we're going to look back at history because cryptography has been around for millennia. The oldest example of cryptography that I'm aware of was carved into a wall in Egypt more than 4,000 years ago. Other examples have been found in third century Sanskrit writings, and the most well-known historical example of cryptography was used by Julius Caesar around 100 BC. It was known as the Caesar cipher because he used it to send secret messages to his generals so that if the messages were intercepted by an enemy, they wouldn't be able to understand its contents. The Caesar cipher used symmetric cryptography, as did those secret decoder rings in the 30s and 40s. Now, set your secret decoder like this for code A3. Then decode this important clue to next week's adventure. Symmetric cryptography means that the same key is used to encrypt and decrypt the message. It's also why it's sometimes called secret key cryptography, because it requires that the key be kept secret. If one of Caesar's enemies were to get the secret key, or you find a magic decoder ring in your cereal box. A decoder ring. Well, it's so easy to decrypt the message that even a kid can do it. The Caesar cipher got its name because the cipher is one of the two basic parts necessary in cryptography. The cipher is the algorithm, a mathematical formula that's used to change the message from readable plain text into unreadable ciphertext. The other basic part is the key. The cipher doesn't change but the key does. So Caesar could use the same cipher, but change the key to increase his security because an old key cannot decrypt a message that was encrypted with a new key. So the process of encrypting a message goes like this. First, you have a plain text message that you want to send and you use the key to run it through the cipher, the algorithm, the mathematical formula, whatever you wanna call it, and you get the encrypted message in ciphertext. And then to decrypt the message, you take the unreadable ciphertext and you use the key to run it back through the algorithm 
and you get a readable plain text message. The weakness of symmetric cryptography is that the key must be kept secret. If anyone gets the secret key that shouldn't have it, the contents of the message are no longer secret. In Caesar's day, this wasn't as big of a deal because communication moved slowly, person to person, so it was reasonable to distribute the keys among his generals. But as technical innovations like the telegraph and the telephone dramatically increased communication speed, in-person key exchange became impractical, although in-person key exchange still does happen sometimes. A fun fact is that diplomatic pouches are known to be a modern-day transport method for secret keys. The big danger with symmetric cryptography isn't only that someone can get the secret key and view a message that they shouldn't. It's that if an enemy gets a secret key, they can send a fake message, spoofing the identity of someone else so that when the receiver gets the message, they believe it's from one person, but in fact, it's from the enemy. But we'll get into that more later. Asymmetric cryptography or public private key encryption was invented, or maybe it's more accurate to say it was discovered because it depends on some really obscure but fundamental rules of math in 1977 by a group of researchers at MIT. Asymmetric encryption provides a higher level of security than symmetric encryption because it doesn't use the same key to encrypt and decrypt the message. It uses a key pair. A key pair has the same basic function as the secret key in symmetric cryptography. Each key in the pair can be used to encrypt or decrypt the message, but rather than a single key, a key pair is two different mathematically related keys where despite knowing one of the keys, it's computationally impossible to figure out the other key. Asymmetric cryptography means that keys no longer have to be shared or secretly communicated. It can be done in the open. That's why asymmetric cryptography is also called public private key encryption, because one key can be publicly available while one key remains private. Asymmetric cryptography means messages can be sent much more securely. Let's imagine Caesar had access to public private key encryption and his general needed to get Caesar a message. Even though an enemy would also have access to Caesar's public key, the general could use Caesar's public key to encrypt a message because it could only be decrypted with Caesar's private key, which no one has access to except Caesar. And of course, this works in reverse so that if Caesar needs to send a message to a general, he encrypts it with the general's public key and the general decrypts it with his private key. Public-private key encryption also means that Caesar can send a message to the public and anyone can verify that his message is authentic and has not been altered. To do this, Caesar would send the message out in plain text alongside a hash of the message that is encrypted with his private key. And then anyone can decrypt the hashed message with Caesar's 
public key and verify that the hashed message was derived from the plain text message, confirming that it was sent by Caesar and also that it wasn't altered. This is what people are referring to when they say that a message was signed. Your private key is kind of like your digital fingerprint. It's how you can authenticate your identity and verify the integrity of your message. So now that we know how it works, let's talk about point number two. Cryptography is essential to the internet. The web we have today was built on a hybrid of symmetric and asymmetric cryptography. The weakness of asymmetric encryption is that it's slower than symmetric encryption, so it's not practical to use for things like bulk data. And of course, the weakness of symmetric encryption on the internet is the same weakness that Caesar faced. It relies on a single key that needs to be shared among a group of people but remain secret from others. So to work around these weaknesses, a hybrid model is used where symmetric cryptography is used to protect bulk data, but asymmetric cryptography is used to distribute the symmetric keys. This hybrid approach was a necessary step in the evolution of the web because it enabled companies to conduct business by making it easy and safe for users to do things like web banking and online shopping. The hybrid approach became a standard called Transport Layer Security, or TLS, and it's used everywhere on the web today. You know that little lock icon you see in the address field of a web browser? That indicates TLS is being used. Hybrid symmetric and asymmetric cryptography, like TLS, shares a key characteristic of other technologies that helped Web2 scale. They made it easy for users, which was essential However, they did this by centralizing data. This means that there are honeypots of personal and financial data that are vulnerable to attack. And if someone gains access to the secret key that shouldn't have it, they can access the data, alter it, or as we see most commonly, sell it on the dark web. In the Heartland hack, the credit card information of 130 million customers was stolen, and the Equifax hack exposed mm -hmm. private information, including social security numbers, of 140 million Americans. And beyond malicious hacking, mistakes are also a weakness of centralized data. The National Archives and Records Administration exposed the information of 76 million veterans by sending a malfunctioning hard drive to an IT service. And a configuration mistake of the U.S. voter database exposed the names, birth dates, contact info, and party affiliations for more than 191 million people from all 50 states. So the third thing we need to talk about is how cryptography is used with blockchain technology and Web3. Blockchain technology means that the data can be personally controlled, but publicly available. As we talked about with asymmetric cryptography, someone can make a public statement and sign it with their private key so that anyone can verify it. What this means is that rather than data being stored in centralized locations that are vulnerable to attack, like on Web 2, it's decentralized on Web 3, pushing control out to the edges of the network and giving users authority over their digital identity, finances, and data. 
This overcomes the issue of asymmetric cryptography being too slow because it's handled at the individual level. In a centralized model, asymmetric cryptography is too slow and resource intensive to handle the tremendous amounts of data involved. But in a decentralized model, asymmetric cryptography works perfectly well for the amount of data of a single user. And that brings me to point number four, regulatory concerns. Decentralization seems to evoke fears of anarchy or something, and the privacy that cryptography offers gets conflated with criminal activity, which can lead to well-intentioned regulation that has terrible unintended consequences. But these are myths that need to be debunked. One particularly concerning issue is that courts and regulatory agencies have been leaning toward requiring disclosure of private keys. This comes from a misunderstanding of asymmetric cryptography. There is no need for private keys to be disclosed to reveal the information necessary to catch and prosecute criminals. Public keys are enough. Public keys are sufficient to identify transactions, data, or assets. As the co-author of TLS, Christopher Allen, said in a recent article, quote, it's the difference between a ledger and a pen. If you wanted accounting information, you would ask for the ledger. You wouldn't ask for the pen, especially not if it was a pen that allowed you to write undetectably in the handwriting of the accountant. There aren't great ways to safely transmit private keys and the danger of them being lost or stolen from a court system or government database is high because there is serious harm that can come from revealing private keys. Unlike the physical keys to a safety deposit box or a car fob, private keys can be easily copied and anyone that gets access to a private key can use it to impersonate the identity of the owner, steal money and assets, or even sign contracts. Fortunately, some regulators are leading the way on regulation to protect private keys. For example, there is a great bill under consideration in Wyoming that says a private key should never be required if a public key will suffice. And they noted in their hearings that their understanding is that a public key will always be enough. And finally, the most important point of the video, it is essential to protect your private keys. While this point has more or less been the overall theme of the video, I can't wrap up without saying it explicitly. Think of protecting your private keys like protecting your nude photos or the nude photos of your significant other or whatever scenario makes you feel most defensive. Because just like nudes, once private keys are exposed, you can never know how many copies were made or who has access to them. Not only are you exposing all of your assets and money to potential theft, but your entire digital identity is at risk. Imagine your fingerprints could be copied and left all over a crime scene. That is what you risk if your private key is exposed because your private key is your digital authority. In addition to financial transactions, it can be used to sign contracts, make statements, and publish data. Do not share your private keys and do not keep them somewhere that can be easily hacked like your email or Google Drive. And that's it for today. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover about Web3, reach out to me at Amy of Alexandria. 
Be sure to follow the channel at Web3WG, and don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to the channel. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.